It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It has been a tough month for technology firms. Over the past few weeks, their market value has fallen by almost $1 trillion. It's been quite a wild week on Wall Street. We're taking a look at some of the biggest movers of the week. Tech has dominated the headlines. Let's get right to Snap. Losing a quarter of its value after hours on this revenue miss. Slowest growth since going public. This is the street's first look at the struggling online ad market, and it's not a pretty one. Capping an already brutal week for big tech, Amazon's shares plunged on Friday, a day after the company forecast holiday quarter sales below Wall Street's estimates. Meta is below 100 bucks a share, and it's down 23%. That's what I call falling out of bed. Investors have been spooked by poor quarterly results and gloomy-sounding executives on calls with analysts. From Amazon. We're working very hard to make sure that uh, current profitability is not the new normal. And, um, you know, uh, we'll see how quickly we make improvements. To Meta, formerly known as Facebook. We continue to navigate some challenging dynamics of volatile macroeconomy, increasing competition, uh, ad signal loss and growing costs from our long-term investment. To Alphabet, formerly known as Google. Obviously, as a company over time, you know, we've had periods of extraordinary growth. And then there are periods where I viewed it as a moment where you take the time to optimize the company to make sure we are set up for the next decade of growth ahead. I view this as one of those moments. And it's not just American tech firms feeling the pain. Chinese firms have been similarly hit. Alibaba's share price is down 77% from its peak in 2020. Welcome to The Techening. You are listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. And in this week's episode, we look at what went wrong for big and not so big tech firms. First, we explain why it pays to look at the sector not as a monolith. I think to start with, it's helpful to split the sector into big tech and, well, not so big tech. Then we head to Asia to find out what's behind the sell-off here. And we ask, can big tech adapt? Well, I think they're all trying to figure out what the next big sort of opportunity is going to be. They're pouring money into things like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, virtual reality and augmented reality. Or are the most disruptive companies of the last three decades now being disrupted themselves? Hey, Alison, Mike. Hey, Samaya. Hello. Have either of you decided to delete Twitter now that it's owned by Elon Musk? Uh, I, I haven't yet. Not that uh, anyone would notice much if I did. I, I tweet quite rarely to my not very many followers. Uh, No, I will not be leaving Twitter, but I'm not sure I'm going to pay uh, almost $100 a year just to have a blue tick next to my name, which is apparently what is being planned. Yes, poor Elon has to pay the bill somehow. 
I can, for my part, report that I signed up to Mastodon because that's apparently where people are going instead. Um, I lasted 45 seconds, got confused and went back to Twitter. Sorry, what is Mastodon? I'm not on Twitter enough to know where people were abandoning it for. Yeah, I mean, honestly, 45 seconds wasn't long enough for me to work it out. Which means that Musk is probably going to be paying his bills with the assistance of me for some time. And speaking of paying their bills, this week we're going to be looking at the tech sector more broadly and what's been a pretty brutal October. One of our colleagues, Tom Wainwright, has been following all things Twitter. Tom, hello. Hi, Samir. So, big question. Have you quit Twitter? I don't think I'm allowed to. I mean, I, you know, I write about it, so I've kind of got to keep logging in whether I like it or not. What do you make of what's been happening? Um, is is the Musk takeover, does that mean the end of all of our hot, hot takes? I don't know. I mean, it, you know, it's incredibly chaotic. We're just learning tweet by tweet, really, what his plans are. I think nobody knows exactly what's going to happen next. But I, I wonder if we might see somewhat less change at Twitter than some people are expecting. I mean, the kind of two big areas that Musk has said he wants to change. One is moderation, where he said he wants to have a a lighter touch than Twitter has had in the past. And the other is advertising, which he said in the past he just dislikes in general. But I think he might find it harder than he expects to change both of those things. What do you mean exactly that? Why would it be harder than he thinks? On moderation, he said that he thinks, you know, anything legal should be tweetable. But I think lots of people have had that idea in the past. And when they come to look at it in more detail, they find that it's a bit more complicated than that. For one thing, different countries have different laws. And there's plenty of stuff that you can say which is not illegal to say, but which just makes for a pretty miserable experience for everybody else on the platform. And so Twitter understandably wants to censor some of that stuff. And on advertising, he's trying to find other ways of replacing this revenue, you know, this idea of making people pay to have the blue tick or maybe getting people to pay a kind of subscription rather than advertising. But again, I think it's tough because a big part of the appeal of Twitter is that everybody's on it. And if you replace the ad model with a subscription model, you're going to have fewer users. And I think if it has a lot fewer users, it's going to become less useful. So I don't know. I I think in recent days, we've already seen a a little bit of backpedaling from him on uh, what he might do. And I suspect that the platform may change a bit less than many people are expecting. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, thinking about the business model, though, Twitter is facing some headwinds, and they're not just the result of Elon Musk. As I mentioned this week, we are going to be looking at the tech sector as a whole. But since that's a lot to pass, I thought I would invite another one of our colleagues named Tom on for maximum confusion. Uh, Tom Lee Devlin is our global business correspondent. Tom, hello to you. How are you feeling about Twitter? Well, I mean, a little bit bemused and I guess as somebody that is not a particularly active Twitter user and doesn't have a blue tick, kind of amused by uh, all of the panic that I see going on around me. I wanted to bring you on because this week you were attempting to make sense of these huge sell-offs in tech that we've seen. And in your piece forthcoming, you argue that it's not actually helpful to think of this all as, as one broad trend. Yeah, well, I think to start with, it's helpful to split the sector into big tech and, well not so big tech. And if we just focus on the latter of those for the moment, which is where we've seen some of the very, very big sell-offs, there's a sort of troublesome trio of business models, 
we're seeing here that that have come to prominence in in the last decade and a half and are really accounting for a lot of of the pain in in the tech market at the moment. We do love a rule of three here at The Economist. Um, How do you define your trio? So I call them the movers, businesses like Uber and DoorDash, which shuttle people and, and food around. The streamers, businesses like Netflix and Spotify. And the creepers, which are businesses that make money by watching their users and and selling, well, eerily well-targeted ads. And that last group includes Snap, but it also includes Meta, which has had a particularly spectacular tumble out of the club of businesses with trillion-dollar valuations over the past 12 months. So this cohort of firms has done particularly badly and by our estimate has, on average, lost about two-thirds of its value in the past 12 months. Wow, that seems like a lot. Tom Wainwright, you have been looking at the tech sector more broadly. How unusual has that very bad experience been? I don't think it's been a vintage year for anybody. You know, it's been tough across the board. But there is a bit of a difference here. You know, if you look at companies like, say, Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, they're down, but maybe between more like, say, 30, 40 percent, which is not quite as much as some of these other companies, you know, Meta is down, I think, more than 70 percent year to date. So it's been a bit of a, a division there. And, and I think it's worth just emphasizing that point on Meta. Meta historically has been viewed as part of this quintuplet of tech giants, but I think it's now questionable whether it really belongs in that group. It's no longer in the list of top 10 most valuable companies in America. In fact, it's not even in the top 20 any longer, and it's worth only about 10 percent of Apple now. Right. Now, Tom Lee Devlin, I want to get into more reasons why these big-ish or not-so-big tech firms are suffering more than the mega-mega giants. What are some of the reasons why those firms seem to be having particularly extreme challenges right now? Well, this group of movers, streamers, and creepers, as we call them, are obviously very different businesses with very different business models. But They suffer from a common set of pitfalls. Those are a misplaced faith in network effects, low barriers to entry, and a dependence on someone else's platform for distribution. So if we just take those in turn, this idea of network effects has been really heavily hyped up in the tech world for some time now. The idea is that for some products, the more people that use it, the more valuable it gets for everyone, which is meant to create this kind of unstoppable vortex that ends up turning these businesses into giant money trees for investors. But in practice, that kind of story is pretty rare. Uber was supposed to benefit from network effects as more riders and drivers would reduce idle times, which in turn would encourage more riders and drivers and so on. And it does, but with diminishing returns. You know, if I want to reduce average wait times on the platform from, say, four minutes to two minutes, for example, I'm going to need twice as many cars on the road. But actually, most users would probably not notice much of a difference there in their experience. So misplaced faith in network effects are the problem there. That's the the movers. What about the streamers? Well, for the streamers, a lot of noise was made about the idea that bucket loads of data on, on the viewing or listening habits of similar users would lead to an unbeatable product. But that's clearly proven not to be true. For example, there was a belief that Netflix's trove of data would allow it to produce exactly the type of content that viewers wanted to see. And Netflix has, of course, had some big hits, but it's also produced some pretty shockingly bad and expensive flops. Okay, that's the streamers and the creepers? 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of the creepers, so network effects are more meaningful. The problem there is that the flywheel can also spin in reverse. Once you start to lose users, that becomes self-perpetuating. And that's particularly problematic because of the second pitfall facing these businesses, which is low barriers to entry and, and the potential for clever new rivals to surge onto the scene. And I know, Tom W., that's something that you're very familiar with from your work. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's interesting. One of the things in tech we've seen in recent years is, is that this idea that some of these companies are completely unassailable monopolies has given way to a, a world in which actually some of them are really fighting for their lives against new competitors. And I, I think probably the most prominent example of this is Meta, whose social network Facebook was accused just recently by antitrust people as, as being a you know monopoly. And yet now it's facing competition from TikTok, which has come along and almost out of nowhere has started hoovering up young users in America. Something similar, arguably, is the case with Netflix, which was never exactly seen as a monopoly, but, you know, it had this pretty impressive first mover advantage in the streaming wars. And yet, you know, Disney, for example, has come along. Its service, Disney Plus, is, you know, really pretty recent. And yet these days, Disney actually, across all its various services, has more streaming subscriptions even than Netflix. So I I think the idea that these companies were in a position where people would find it, you know, really hard to catch them up and where they'd somehow developed an unassailable position has really been exploded. Absolutely agree with all of that, Tom. Uh, And the third point here is that these businesses have really started to struggle against the immense amounts of power that's now wielded by the, the iPhone Android duopoly, which has in many ways become the gateway for the consumer internet. Companies like Uber now pay a pretty penny to advertise on the app stores. Companies like Spotify have to pay a commission for subscriptions made via their apps or alternatively follow the the Netflix model of of making users sign up on a browser. But it's really firms like Snap and, and Meta that have been hit the hardest by this. The introduction of Apple's and then Android's requirement that that users give iPhone apps permission to track their activity across other apps and websites has pummeled businesses like Snap and, and Meta that have historically relied on, on that kind of third-party data. So Meta, for example, has, has estimated that Apple's new policy will cost them $10 billion in, in foregone revenue this year alone. I have a question about why some of these more structural issues are only showing up now. I mean, the Apple change to tracking, that feels like a recent development. It would make sense that there would be a more recent reaction to that. But things like misplaced faith in networks or Netflix not being as kind of immune to competition as people previously thought, why would that only have an impact on share prices recently? So I think that really comes down to what's happened recently in the interest rate environment. So businesses like Uber have for a long time struggled to turn a profit for investors. But in a world where capital is essentially free, a lot of investors were willing to be very patient with them around that. But I think now attitudes towards this kind of jam tomorrow but never today type of business have have really shifted. That makes sense. Now, Tom, Tom, I'm going to stop you right there. Later, I want to return to this question of what all of this means for the sector going forward. But for now, sit tight. Maybe tweet, maybe don't tweet. We will hear from you again soon. Thanks, Amaya. Sounds good. Sounds good. 
After the break, we'll look to China, where trillions of dollars have been wiped from the value of the country's tech stocks. Investors are running from more than just rising interest rates. But before we get to that... It is the time in the show where we encourage you to take out a subscription to The Economist. This week, our correspondents take a look at why we're going to miss the target of limiting global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. It's sobering stuff. You can also read our extensive coverage of Brazil's election results. You can subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. You should consider signing up for our newsletters like The Bottom Line and Money Talks at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The speed with which investors turned their backs on some of America's biggest brands may have surprised some Silicon Valley executives. But it probably won't have shocked many in Shenzhen, where the companies behind many of China's best-known apps and websites are based. Over the past year, Nasdaq's Golden Dragon Index, which is an index of Chinese tech stocks, has more than halved in value. On October 24th alone, it fell by over 14% just in one day. Companies there aren't just dealing with economic concerns. They're also having to deal with a hostile political landscape, both at home and abroad. It's complicated stuff, which is why we are so lucky to have Mike to explain what's going on. Right. Yes. Thank you very much for that, Samir. How would you compare and contrast the American and Chinese tech sectors? Can one neatly categorize companies into movers, streamers and creepers? I think there's definitely a lot of overlap there. China's got its own creepers in the form of companies like Baidu, and it's certainly got its own movers in terms of companies like Didi. There's actually quite a lot of similarities if you look at the Chinese companies to the big US ones. Didi, yeah, is often described as China's Uber, and it does ride-hailing and deliveries. Alibaba in e-commerce is the obvious comparison to to Amazon, Baidu in, in search, and other internet services to Google. And that's sort of really useful, lazy shorthand for financial journalists like ourselves. But I do think it reflects the fact that the American and Chinese consumer-facing tech sectors really boomed at very similar times. And in large parts, they were fixing the same problems and finding the same inefficiencies to smooth out. So they face some of the same financial problems too when it turns out, for example, that a business model might just not be very profitable or that it needs truly enormous scale to make any money. Right. So those are the commonalities between them. What about the differences? So what's different is really crucial. China's tech firms are, for the most part, very Chinese indeed. Alibaba makes about nine times from Chinese commerce what it does in international commerce, and Tencent. Likewise, you're talking about about a 90-10 split. 
Some are even more China-dominated than that. Those are actually relatively internationally focused. So they're playing in an extremely large market, but they're very much home bodies. So a company like ByteDance, for example, the parent company of TikTok, is really quite rare in operating major competitive tech platforms, both inside and outside of China. The other rather closely related difference, of course, is whatever exposure you think major tech firms in the West have to politics, whether that's governments uh, scrapping over where they report their tax revenue or the fact that these companies are becoming the focus of trust busters, the Chinese tech firms are just much, much more exposed. It's an authoritarian political system. Ultimately, the tech firms prosper or indeed don't prosper very much at the behest of political decision makers. Okay, so in one way, they're much less powerful, perhaps, than their American counterparts. So what's been changing more recently? Well, it's been all change on several fronts the last couple of years or so, uh, especially as far as the shareholders are concerned. The first change is honestly very similar to the issue in the U.S. Venture capital funding has really gone through the floor recently. In the first nine months of the year, it was down something like 44% in value year on year by one measure. China does pretty well in general, keeping the financial system closed from the world. But that's not possible to do completely. And private investors from the US were big players in Chinese VC. Chinese private investors are players in the VC scene in the rest of the world. So to some extent, it's it's the same story as what's going on globally. Okay, so that capital drying up, that's a similarity. What's different about the Chinese case then? What are the sources of stress that are different? There's a couple of things which are both closely related to each other, and they're both political. The first is domestic, which is probably the biggest issue. It started in late 2020, this very sharp turn by the government against internet platforms, apps, consumer tech firms that had once been these sort of darlings of modern Chinese capitalism. That was symbolized by Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, disappearing from public life around that time. Then Didi IPO'd in the US in 2021, which is immediately followed by a regulatory investigation into the company at home. You had domestic app stores removing Didi. The company had to stop registering new users. It was basically a wholesale disaster. And it's become clear that these tech firms in their current state aren't really welcome at the table when it comes to Xi's common prosperity, the Chinese president's push for a more equitable and patriotic Chinese capitalism. Tech companies that, say, make advanced hardware are still very much in the tent. They're in favor. They're in receipt of praise and assistance from the government. But it's a totally different story for the consumer-facing companies that are really being squeezed. And then finally, you've got the U.S. political side, which is really increasingly fragile when it comes to Chinese tech as well. There's meant to be this deal underway to let the U.S. Public Company Accounting Oversight Board audit Chinese firms without which there's the risk that they'll have to delist from American exchanges. That could still all fall apart. It's very tentative at the moment. Right. So you had this very, very strong orientation of these tech firms towards China's domestic market. And at one point that was perceived as this mega strength. But now it's actually a weakness because of these political risks. Yeah, I think that puts it very well. You'll still have some Chinese tech companies that can do bits of work abroad, Some of them are doing, for example, uh, working cloud computing in Southeast Asia. But it's always just going to be a relatively small proportion of the money that they make domestically. 
Now, before we return to the Toms, why don't we bring in Alice? You know, get the whole gang together, because I want to hear both of your thoughts. Now, thinking back to what's going on in the US, where do you think it's possible to draw parallels or, or even lessons from the Asian experience? So obviously there are some sort of idiosyncratic things going on in China, as, as Mike has teased out, you know, particularly the sort of regulatory story and the crackdown there. But if you zoom out to the bigger picture, it does seem like there are some similarities. And it's key in both China and the US to tease out how much of what is going on is structural, driven by these sort of big changes, either in the competitive landscape, regulation, other sort of big fundamental drivers, how much is just cyclical as the US and Chinese economy slow down, and how much is potentially just investors, you know, overreacting or getting overly gloomy on tech. People have got very sour on tech very aggressively over the past few weeks. So you saw a huge reaction in Chinese tech stocks to sort of Xi being confirmed for a third term, uh, even though that was already sort of basically the default um, scenario. And in the US, you've seen you know firms like Airbnb that reported their earnings on November 1st. They actually had a pretty good quarter. It was their sort of busiest and most profitable quarter ever. And yet still they got slammed by the market. So... It seems as though there are big structural drivers of the techening. Uh, There are sort of cyclical economic slowdown factors, but also we've definitely reached the phase of the route where people are just sort of indiscriminately dumping stuff. Yeah, I'd say if you've got a sadistic streak, go and listen to some recorded earnings calls for tech companies and the sort of pleading about how closely CEOs are now looking at uh, free cash, um, free cash flow. We're going to generate cash. You know, there's this obsession on the part of investors now who were once very optimistic about these companies growing forever with no real sign of profitability. And they've essentially pulled the rug out from these these poor individuals who now have to be concerned with things like actually making money. It's a little bit like, you know, they're, they're trying to turn a steamship around and, and change all the moving parts at the same time. You can't spend a decade or more looking at growth. You're going to have hired people who are good at looking at growth and good at expanding and, and things like that, not people who are good at conserving and generating cash. Um, which is now really the name of the game. And and for a lot of people in the tech sector, this is the first time they've really had to do any of this. Okay, I mean, with all of this focus on generating cash, making profits, I think the the next big question is how well can these tech firms turn that steamship around? Can they actually adapt and, and generate cash? Which brings me back to the Toms again. So you two sit tight. I want to ask the Toms for their take on the future of US tech companies. Tom and Tom, thank you so much for sticking around. So Tom Lee Devlin, earlier you were telling us what has gone wrong for tech firms like Netflix, Uber, Snap. What are they doing to try to recover? Well, it's really the first time these companies are having to pay proper attention to running an efficient operation rather than just focusing on growth. Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon and Meta have all either slowed down or frozen their hiring entirely, which is a pretty remarkable reversal from recent years. And they've also been doing some much needed pruning of less promising areas of business. So Amazon, for example, has abandoned a delivery robot program it had been investing in. Alphabet is supposedly doing a thorough review of all its projects. Probably the one exception here is Meta, which is full steam ahead on on Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse vision, despite facing really quite significant criticism from investors over its ballooning costs there. Thinking about this, is there any good news for these companies coming up or people who like their services? 
Well, I guess stepping back, I'd argue that we're at an inflection point here. So smartphones and, and speedy broadband have unlocked a whole array of disruptive consumer applications over the past couple of decades, which has driven incredible growth for these companies and, and also has been great for consumers. But the consumer internet is now entering a more mature phase. Penetration rates for a lot of these services are now plateauing and, and competition is becoming a lot fiercer. I don't think we should imagine that that means these firms are destined for some kind of sad, slow decline, though. The admittedly less sexy but very important area of enterprise technology, for example, still has a lot of road ahead. The foray into cloud computing by big tech firms in recent years is is one example of that, but there's still a lot more they can do there. We've really only scratched the surface of what can be done with things like machine learning and blockchain, for instance. So I'd argue that for their next act, that's probably where big tech firms should be thinking about directing their armies of brainy people and their hefty war chests. Tom Wainwright, what's your take on whether there are good things in the future of these companies? Well, I think they're all trying to figure out what the next big sort of opportunity is going to be. And as Tom says, they're pouring money into various different, in some cases, rather speculative projects. And I think key areas include things like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, virtual reality and augmented reality. And on that latter subject, you know, we've seen Meta has just released its new headset. Apple is releasing one early next year, people say, and Google is expected to release one maybe the year after that. So there's a lot of interest in what these new battlegrounds in tech are going to be. And all of these huge companies are desperately trying to make sure that whatever the battleground is, they're prepared for that fight. Right. And then big picture, how do you think we should interpret these recent tumbles in the context of those broader opportunities that that are there? Tom's right, you know, that something has changed here. And I, I think an important change that's taken place is that for a lot of these tech companies, it now seems that they're just more susceptible to the business cycle, just like other companies, than they used to be. Because in the past, they had this sort of almost gravity-defying quality where in a downturn, you'd see other companies take a dive. Meanwhile, tech companies often seem to be almost immune to that. And now we're not seeing that, you know. And I, I think what's going on is that In the past, markets like, say, the digital advertising business would just keep growing because companies would rein in their offline ad spending and the online ad spending kept growing because so much advertising was shifting online all the time that these downturns almost didn't seem to make much of a difference. I think now that one-off change from the offline economy to the online economy, a lot of that's taken place already. And so now when there's a downturn, I think we're seeing these tech firms tumble along with the rest of the economy. And that's a new important thing. And I just add to that as well, in, in this new world, I think there is a need for these companies to adopt a more mature management ethos. There is a risk that the pursuit of reinvention descends into ill-discipline and inefficiency. Over the past few years, we've seen big tech's combined return on capital steadily declining. And that is, in many ways, a reflection of the way that they've really sprayed money at moonshot bets or spread themselves into pretty tenuously related lines of business. So shifting to a more disciplined model is going to be essential in the years ahead, but it's going to be a tough transition for them. Tom, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Simeon. Bye. Okay, Alice, Mike, what are your takeaways from all of this? It is really interesting to sort of discuss 
the pressures on tech firms now. For a long time, people seem to believe that the network effects that they had, uh, the first mover advantages, all of those sort of benefits to their business models had made them potentially sort of immune to the forces that drag other firms back to earth. But the idea that they're going to sort of struggle and have to compete and possibly many of them will slip out of being the biggest and and sort of most powerful companies um, as they try to adapt... You know, that's kind of a return to the the norm. You know, none of the biggest firms uh, in the 1980s are still the biggest firms now. Um, And the only one that's close is is ExxonMobil, the sort of big oil company. And in terms of how these firms are trying to adapt, none of them want to become the next Nokia by just totally failing to to change as the world changes. But history is also sort of littered with firms that adapted in terrible ways that sort of ultimately hastened their decline, um, like GE. And it's it's really rare for firms to sort of successfully pull off a transition. Yeah, I think it's just a reminder to me that uh, however sort of whizzy or exciting you think uh, your company is, however intelligent you think you are as an investor, you will live and die uh, at the sort of the discount rate. You know, the, the Fed matters a lot. Um, and, and seeing this sort of cash flood out just makes clear how important those sort of funding conditions are. There's probably some companies that, had you let them keep going for five years, maybe they would have become profitable, but they're probably not going to keep going um, uh, just because the, the the funding is gone. That easy cash they thought was was a given um, is gone. And, and it reminds me of sort of the absolute centrality of that to all market stuff and how in bull markets we probably get a little bit carried away with thinking we've sort of reinvented the wheel with new types of companies. Um, this is the tide going out and you can see who's swimming naked. Yeah, I mean... You know, as the host of this episode, obviously my terror is that we publish and then, you know, three hours later, the tech stocks all rebound and then uh, all of this stuff goes away. Um, But I think those structural dynamics are there. I think it is striking how these firms that seemed like leaders have had such a synchronized fall. Now, shall we go on to our stats of the week? Yes, I can go first. This week, it's quite a pivot. Uh, I've been interested in what's happening in dairy prices. I would say an underwatched commodities market. The last two weeks, the global dairy trade price index is down at 3.9%. It was down 4.6% the two weeks before that. It was down 3.5% the two weeks before that. And in seven of the last nine two-week periods, it's been down. And I think that's really interesting because it tells you two things. The first is that it's almost all a sort of monitor of Chinese demand. They're the major uh, importers of various sorts of dairy powder and dairy products around the world. And secondly, it's very, very bad for New Zealand, uh, which is an agricultural export giant. It exports a huge proportion of the world's dairy products. Um, Yeah, we should all pay a little bit more attention to the dairy price index. My favourite thing about that was how you reported the milk price drops week by week. So it was like the stock market, you were like, and then they were down 3% and then another 3%. It was, you know, if you sort of describe it in that way, I'm sure people will begin paying way more attention to milk prices than they do now. Listen, if we took all the milk away from the world, people would notice a lot more quickly than they'd notice if we abolished the stock market. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Uh, yeah, don't see why we have to abolish either milk or stocks. But but anyway. If it's got to be one, if it's got to be one. My stat of the week is 10%, which is the percentage of McLaren P1s that were registered in Montana. So McLarens are a sort of very sexy supercar, and Montana is a tiny state that only has sort of 0.3% of the US population. And 
Uh, yet 10% of these sort of very sexy supercars were registered there. And apparently this is because the sort of tax and uh, uh, regulatory restrictions on sort of registering supercars in Montana are very lax compared with other states. So if you see people driving around in uh, extremely fancy cars with Montana plates, they're probably not actually from Montana. They probably got their supercar bus to them across America. It's a very cynical take. They don't just like uh, Montana's large, wide open roads. They're not just driving the cars very fast. They like their low taxes, Mike. That's what they like. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, I'm going to jump in here and make the tone much gloomier with my stat of the week, which is 40%. That is the share of Ukraine's energy infrastructure that has been impaired since Russia's invasion. But this is also a, a, a chirpier endorsement of our sister podcast, The Intelligence. Uh, you can hear our colleague Matt Steinglass speaking much more about that um, on an episode from last week. And with that, it only remains for us to say thank you very much for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher. Our sound engineer was Nico Ralfast. Our editor was Kim Gittleson. I'm Sumaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Forward. And this is The Economist. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.